Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. Pretty simple. I ask the guests who they are. So hello, who are you? Uh, G'day, I'm James Colley. <laughs> Welcome to Philosophy. We'll get to our panel in a moment, but first. <laughs> <laughs> See, every show needs an introduction of some kind, good boy James Colley. And, uh, you know, words are just things that are said. What I love about, I talk about this occasionally on this podcast, and we're going to go again, by the way, and get a proper introduction okay, from you in a we'll second. Do. But let's go with this first, which is... The, the reason that I say hello and welcome to a Philosophy with Will Anderson, I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, is that originally when I started this show, we're now in a radio studio recording this today. Yeah. It's very funny because the two, you and I, as we will, I'm sure, talk about, work quite closely together, yeah. see each other at a whole bunch of different forums. <laughs> you probably could have come over to my house to do this, but yeah. there's a radio studio involved now, <laughs> and I figure we might as well take advantage of the fact that somebody else will set it up for us, somebody else will edit it, you know, yeah. it'll all be ready. But back in the day when I started doing this show, I was that person. It was me. Yeah. I was doing it all myself, editing, putting in music, uploading it to the iTunes thing. That was all me. Mm -hmm. And so the show was originally called Willosophy and just with Will Anderson, as in I am also on the show, <laughs> but it wasn't in the title of the show. And then uh, at some stage I stopped doing it for a while, as I am, tend to do with this podcast, and I forgot what the login was to the Apple thing, and I could never get them to get back to me so that I could log into the original account. So I had to rename the show Willosophy with Will Anderson <laughs> so I could register it as a new show on Apple. And, and re so, like, literally that introduction has come out of the fact that I was just too incompetent to do the job myself. I like that this is like that thing where, you know, all the Greek texts were lost until the Romans came across them again. And yeah. they're like, you had a great philosophy that was then stuck in a vault, forgotten in a cave somewhere and you know maybe it'll be dug up in a in hundred years and we'll find out what it means the original episodes are at least in the right order too because the original <laughs> ones are in the order i recorded them whereas for some reason when i reposted them they're not so it now <laughs> appears like the john saffron episode was the first one when it wasn't it was a todd sampson anyway we don't need to get in the weeds of this this is not about me this is about you james collie so let's let's go again i'm going to ask you who you are and you're going to give me a proper answer this okay. time you said you wouldn't put my feet to the fire but we're right here <laughs> who are you uh, I'm James Colley. I'm a writer, a father. I get to say that mm. now, which always feels like it has quite a bit of gravitas. You it know? does. Um, and that's about it, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, two good ones, though. Yeah. Writer slash father. Mm. Yeah, I'm a slashy. Writer slash father. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, James, some people might know some of your uh, writing, but for people who don't, let's give them a little bit of background. Name some of the things that you have written that people might know about. Uh, a show called Gruen. Oh, yeah. Um, head writer of a show called Gruen. Mm. Uh, I've done that for a few years. Uh, question Everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then outside of that... Uh, anything good? You written on anything good? <laughs> well, that's a tougher question. Let's cut, circle back to that. <laughs> uh, I've also done uh, The Weekly of Charlie Pickering, uh, Summer Love, uh, The 1% Club, uh, a bunch of... Like uh, one of those things that you build up a big list of various things I've done here and there. So. Okay, so let's let's go back to the start. I, this mm -hmm. I, I'm very interested in this with you because how where does it start? How do you become a writer? Because you very much are a writer. Like mm. books, 
you know, articles, satire, comedy, like, you know, television shows, a whole bunch of things, narrative television, like, you know, the sort of, you know, dumb television that you helped me make, like all sorts of different projects, but all like very much under that banner of, you know, being a writer. So where does your journey as a writer start? How early in your life do you remember does it come, I imagine, from reading in the first place? Was there a passion around reading or were you one of those kids who was precocious and told stories a lot or wrote things down? Where does it come from? Okay, I haven't told this before. Yeah. Uh, Good. So, oh, well, this is the right place for this. <laughs> uh, there was a character, and I say character loosely, on a sketch of Rove Live when I was uh, in primary school, and it was a pig wearing a cape. And he was called Hoover the Wonder Pig. And he may have appeared for eight seconds in the entirety of Australian television. But for some reason, that captured my imagination. And I then, for every show and tell for the rest of, I want to say, year three, year four, I was only contributing the the extended universe of Hoover the Wonder Pig's really? adventures. Yes. And his, his um, so enemy. So in who, that you were, like, you'd taken this tiny little character. Yes. You had... Tom Stoppart style Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> yes. You've taken this minor character from a play and imagined an entire universe, put filled in their entire backstory. You mm-hmm. were doing Kevin Feige Marvel <laughs> yes. uh, minor heroes before he was doing that. Exactly that. It was Hoover the Wonder Pig who had uh-huh. a slew of powers. Um, he would be up against his enemy who was an evil apple called the Bad Apple. Okay. I can't remember much else of the plot. I like that though. <laughs> yeah. Good. The I Bad Apple. Like, yeah, that, that's that feels, works. Yeah. That, that's a good kind of wordplay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost wordplay. What sort of the Wonder Pig and the Apple, what sort of like battles were they engaged in when you say they were enemies? Like I suspect, mm. like I have very hazy memory of this, but I uh, suspect what I was doing was essentially recreating Pokemon drama or like Mario levels or things. Okay. Like, I don't think there was a lot of narrative intrigue going along. I think there was a lot of, well, the apple's here and I'm a pig and have to deal with that because that's my job. Okay, so do do you think then that your storytelling was formed out of, like, I mean, you mentioned gaming things there really more than literature. Was that where the storytelling you were seeing was coming from? Was it in the playground? Was there a tradition of storytelling in your home? Like, yeah, where does this creativity that Mm. you see this minor character and you start to create this universe come from? That's interesting. I'm not too sure, really. Like, we weren't a like not an incredibly literary home not a very storytelling home um and and there was a lot of like tv with my dad that would be a lot of the journey there like it would be like um and particularly uh comedy tv so like uh mash and billy Connolly are the two like touchstones that were always like this was what we would connect over and watch a lot of these things together so i think like that's kind of the basis part of it's fun to tell stories and funny and like you know these are very charismatic and charming characters that lead both these with Billy in his own stand up and Alan Alda running the MASH universe yeah. the MASH extended universe <laughs> <laughs> the MCU yeah. the, uh, the, the original MCU <laughs> but yeah so I think it um, ran through there and then um, it almost became like the uh, particularly early on like a thing that could be my own like something that um you know, uh, particularly as I have two older sisters who are a decent chunk, like five and seven years older than me. And so you don't get a lot of shared interest. Like you, you, you know, I am subjected to a lot of say 90 slasher films that I was not ready for and mm-hmm. things of that like, but there's not a lot of, we both are interested in this common thing. So a like, uh, retreat to like 
comic books and and stories and stuff was a big part of that. And I do remember though, you know how there's always like a teacher who has dropped something very useful. Um, this was one who uh, a substitute teacher only had her for about I think three days, four days. But um, and I cannot remember her name, so I'm very sorry to you out there. But um, she had said she was talking about um, how we had the John Marsden books, the Tomorrow When the War Began series uh-huh. in our library. And she dropped the perfect phrase to get me interested, which is, wow, a lot of other libraries have already banned those, oh. but they're still in yours. That's interesting. Good. And then just let that hang. And I'm like, well, if uh. people want to ban it, then I want to read it. I love this rebel sub, by the way. <laughs> Come swinging into school, getting kids interested in banned books in the library. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, so did you go to the library? Do you remember that book in particular as being quite a pivotal book in, like, you know, opening up the imagination and the storytelling? Yeah, I think so. It was the first, like, um, uh, like the Harry Potter was very big mm-hmm. at the time. Um, the Boy Wizard. Harry oh yeah, Potter. yeah. So yeah. yes, the boy wizard, yeah. the the boy who lived. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> the boy who lived and then the had his from reputation under the stairs, right? tarnished. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think Harry Potter's still fine, right? Yeah, I think it's he's okay. The, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Like, I mean, you wouldn't blame, you know. Like the bad apples behavior on the fact that you were the <laughs> person, true. like on your dodgy opinions, <laughs> what you're saying online, you can't judge the bad apple or the or the pig that you riffed off Rove, <laughs> like the intellectual property that you riffed yeah, off Rove. Rove is going to sue my ass when this comes out. <laughs> it's actually interesting because the first head writer of the weekly was a head writer for Rove Live, uh-huh. uh, Joe McCulloch. And I've always wanted to bring up the wonder pig with him, but I also know it would have been a Four-second sketch right. that you did. And if someone had brought up with you, like, do you remember this this joke you made in season three of, of mm. Gruen? No idea. No, people do do that <laughs> all the time. And I do have no idea. So you are absolutely correct in that. <laughs> I ran into the lovely Jerry McCulloch in the street like two days ago. Oh. So it was just a weird coincidence that you mentioned that and I saw him. One of the funniest men in Australia, Jared, and mm. such a lovely guy. I would love to have him on the podcast, actually. He'd be a great guest on this. I'll actually get him in now. Yeah, could you? <laughs> and he, could actually, I've him? got him here. If I want, let's bring a spare. <laughs> <laughs> I said, could you get me two of Australia's greatest comedy writers, please? <laughs> I just need them both available. Uh, okay, so paint a picture. I know it's always interesting because, well, yeah, we've worked together now for a very long time and we'll get to some of that, but I – I know like quite a lot about you in some ways and then in some other ways, you know, I have whole bits of your life that I'm not really familiar with at all, or I just have very much broad brushstrokes of what it is. So Mm. paint a picture of where you are, where you grow up, what that life is like, because I think from the little I know about that, it's an interesting perspective that brings you to the world of inner city, ABC, latte drinking, Chardonnay socialism. (laughs) So we're drinking Chardonnay. Yeah. Um, uh, I start out, so uh, I'm a RAF brat. Uh, so my dad was uh, stationed when I was born at Williamstown up in, which is Newcastle, um, still city baby. Uh, so I was born in Maitland, and um, which is like country town outside of Newcastle, and then uh, moved into the Hawkesbury because he was stationed to that RAF base. And that uh, is where they're working on Herc jets and stuff. So um, my dad like spent 20 years in the RAF and... Um, he never got to leave the country. He got to leave the state once where he flew to uh, the Northern Territory mm-hmm. and didn't get to leave the base because all the Jeeps were booked. So they slept in a cot and 
flew back to Sydney. He joined the raft to see the world mm. and he saw the inside of a base in the Northern Territory and then came back to Sydney where he saw Sydney and Newcastle and that was his world. I mean, I flew with the roulettes over Sydney Harbour. I feel like I did <laughs> yeah. better than your dad. He, really he should have got a job on Triple J. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, yeah, so uh, we grew up uh, around Richmond and around, uh, so which is outside of Penrith, about half an hour outside of Penrith, and uh, grew up there and in the Blue Mountains, um, where, so my dad uh, my dad uh, had to leave the RAF. He had a- So for people who are listening overseas mm-hmm. in particular, but even in other places in Australia, they yep. might not be familiar with where Penrith is. They might know that they have a pretty handy football team. Yeah, but other of than the that, West, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the West of Sydney. Yes. And like, well- Funnily enough, like what is described as the west of Sydney, but what has increasingly become the geographical heart of Sydney, technically, if you look yes. at the population and where people live in Sydney, it is much more the heart of Sydney. But uh, in the way that, you know, the heart of Sydney is like the pretty bit around the harbour, you yes, know, exactly. where the opera house yeah. is and the, and the bridge and all the pretty beaches, we consider anything that's further than that the west. Yes, and um, which is interesting because I always feel like uh, we grew up with a bit of a – you know that madman meme that's like, uh, I feel sorry for you, I don't think about you at all? Mm. We have a version of that where, like, I feel like everyone who grew up in the West has such a chip on our shoulders about the rest of the city. And like, how dare they? They hate us. They're so awful about us. And then you show up and they're like, mm. oh, no, we've just never thought about it. Never really considered <laughs> yeah, it. The idea Didn't of going, know you existed. You're yeah. kind of just like, there be dragons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Once you go past this line, there's a lot of other stuff happening there. I believe the Rudy Hill RSL somewhere mm-hmm. out there. Other than that, I'm <laughs> not really familiar with what's going on. Exactly. So it's a lot of that vibe. Um, and which was interesting in itself because like, for example, I didn't know until I came into university, wasn't really aware that we were poor. Like it didn't, cause it doesn't come up. Everyone's on right. about the same footing as you. And then you go into the city and you find out, oh no, not everyone's on the same footing as you. And like, and I don't mean like, uh, like we were very lucky that like mostly secure and stuff, but just, um, like socioeconomic levels to this. Um, and so I think uh, that like, which is always interesting, like particularly when you go to something like writing and comedy, my biggest fear coming in was that people wouldn't under, like that my sense of humor or uh, what I wrote wasn't sophisticated enough for a city audience. Like I was mostly worried that you have all read things that I haven't read or you know things that I don't know about or you'll talk in Latin or something and <laughs> I have no idea. Because I remember doing uh, my like second or third gig was at the comedy store for, I think it was like a raw comedy heat. And um, So the comedy store in Sydney, t- take, take me to what age you are when this is happening. I will be 15. Uh, so my, my first gig was at uh, the Roxbury Hotel at 15 for a, a like a uh, Quest for the best show, like a, mm-hmm. a, a bring an audience, like little show that used to run in um, RIP to this bar in the top of the Roxbury. And um, I would have one of my friends, Mark, who was the only one of our uh, group that had P plates. Wasn't a good driver by any means at that time, but he had his P plates. So he would drive me into the city or he and his dad uh, would take me in and I would go um, and do for my first couple of gigs, I would go and do uh, this show. And end up um, like okay. Let's even go look back a little bit further than this yes. because I, I mean this is great, and I want to hear all about this. But I, I want to know what gets you onto like you know you've you've almost jumped immediately to I'm 15 and here are my first gigs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Whereas like I need to know what got you to the point where you thought at 15 doing gigs was a thing that you <laughs> yeah, were meant to be doing at all. Well, there was um, 
it was particularly like I really liked um like public speaking mm-hmm. and doing comedy and like the, the kind of class clown element of it. Of and, like, and that was part of your identity at school. Like, yeah, you know, if people were talking about who you were, were you called James? What did people call you at school? Oh, nothing nice. No, what did you, <laughs> what was your nickname? Did you have a nickname? No, it was mostly like James or Collie. Yeah, and really? Even, no Jimmy, no Jim, no, no Coles, no. Never of the sort. No. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, which I, I think I was never the only James. Uh-huh. So it was always like no. I was default and I would try and get everyone else a nickname first because I wanted to be James. But James. Yes. Did you ever get like James C? Did you have to go by James C or something like that? Jimmy C every so Jimmy often. Jimmy C. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy C. <laughs> Never I like it. that. i got to be honest. <laughs> um, and there was a lot of, uh, but like, yeah, so uh, like particularly like the very first comedic elements I remember are because there was a kid in um, year one when I was in kindergarten um, who would uh, beat the shit out of me most uh-huh. days, unless I referenced his favorite film, The Little Rascals. Oh, <laughs> and okay. He would enjoy The Little Rascals so much that we'd just chat about that and he'd forget to beat me up, okay. which was a really great get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that worked in a lot of situations. It's amazing how many people have been bullied into comedy. <laughs> like, you know, when you hear this story, like people are always like, well, I really developed a sense of humor to stop this guy punching me at school. <laughs> and you're like, the, the person who was punching these people... I've started so many comedy careers. Yeah, <laughs> they probably sit at home just going, you know, he gave that uh, substitute teacher a bit of credit, but it was also <laughs> me threatening to bash him in, just in case he did a bit from the Little Rascals. This is what Screen Australia yeah. should be. You go yeah. in with your, like, I'm not sure, I kind of want to be a filmmaker, yeah. and they just beat it out of you. There's just a big guy in the <laughs> corner who comes over and just starts bashing you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be funnier. <laughs> All right, so you've decided, you've done some funny public speaking at school. This yeah. becomes a bit of your identity. But what makes you think, I'm, like, I want to take this out of the school and I want to go and do this in front of strangers. I think it was, like, at the time, what was uh, the most popular comedy special I had seen, like, like the one that all my friends were sharing and things, was Ricky Gervais's first one, which oh. was Animals. Okay. Um, and what was interesting about it to me, very interesting retrospect, but what was interesting about it to me was that it was simple. It was that I had the thought that anyone could do that. Yeah. Like, the, like up until this point, <laughs> comedians had seemed magic. Yeah, and it seemed really hard. It seemed Whereas really what difficult. What he was doing seemed like it was the first time he was ever doing it. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, well, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Simple enough. You were right too. You probably could. <laughs> that was. And also, like the strange part about that, as a like start off part as well, is that. I thought that this is the comedy that adults liked. Like, because there was also a bit of projecting up. If I'm like 12, 13, 14, and I'd like write for, um, we'd have public speaking competitions or things like that at um, school, which were in no way comedic. And I would come on and do a comedy bit in that because that's the only stage type that existed. And so I remember that after about the second year of doing this, the teacher started to catch on a bit and would put, the most downer of a speech before mine. Like there was one about it's horrible, but like a um very politically aware and um smart shoot before me uh was on talking about uh genital mutilation and how it's happening around the world and how like horrible it is and how it needs to be put to a stop. And they're like, great, thank you for that speech. Round of applause. Okay, here's James Colley to do just five minutes of funny funny. <laughs> 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 went about as well as you can imagine. Um, well, I mean, 
I, but there is something interesting about that because, like, I like started doing public speaking as well, obviously, mm. and I did this like there used to be this competition, probably still runs actually, I think called uh, run by the Lions Club, called the Lions Youth of the Year, and part of it mm-hmm. was like public service, and there was an interview component and these sort of things, but the majority of it was a public speaking competition, really at its heart, and so you would prepare a speech about something like you know genital mutilation or you know some serious topic. I remember. I can't remember all the ones I did because I would change it up from like event to event. But I know at the time there was a lot of like Nelson Mandela, apartheid's a bad thing, guys. You yeah. know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, things that grown adults need to hear from a 15 year old boy <laughs> that apartheid is a bad idea. <laughs> so, um, but they also used to have an improvise. So, in that, this was the thing about this Lions Youth of the Year competition was mm. there was like, say your prepared speech was five minutes or six minutes. There was also like a, it must have only been two minutes or something, but the idea of it, like, they would give you a topic and you would have to improvise a speech. riff on Mandela for a bit. For two minutes. (laughs) And it turns out, uh, maybe unsurprisingly, that that was the thing that I particularly excelled at. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I could kind of write a speech as well as the other kids, but it was really this improvised moment where, like, everybody else would, you know, be like a... Miss America contestant trying to, you know, yeah. answer a question and I would suddenly just be like, yeah, all right, chuck me another one. Yeah. I'll do his as well. And you know what? I reckon I can do a gen- genital mutilation thing <laughs> for two minutes. Yeah, come, come on. on easy. Um, so, like, the idea that you were put in these circumstances and then you still wanted to be funny even when it was hard is, like, that's that's good. Like, I mean, that's good training for what you want to do. So now when you decide that you're going to take this out in the world, yeah. like, do you – have any idea what that means? Or no. are you just completely naive? Completely naive. I don't even remember how I found out about this comedy show. Because mm. I would say, like, the um, it wasn't a massive event. Like, this was just a, um, every Wednesday bringing, like, you bring your crowd audience, like, yeah. which I could not do. Because I did this I show quite say, a bit. I was going to say, all your crowd are... They're they can't get into the venue. exactly. That was, uh, like, I... Uh, actually remember the um like i was lucky enough for this first year to go pretty far in um in raw comedy i think this is the year i um tied in like in the new south wales finals with gruen researcher david cunningham oh is who, that right who ended up going through to the final because he was very good and he should have been there but i remember i couldn't get into the final because the bouncer would not believe that i was on and so I didn't have any ID, obviously, because I was still like 15. Right. And so I had to have another comedian who happened to be wandering in to be like, no, 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 he's he's part of the gig. Let him through. <laughs> and then after like it had gone well, he tried to give me a, a beer afterwards yeah. to be like, hey, congratulations, here's a beer. And I got it like two inches mm. from my mouth and the bouncer grabbed it out of my <laughs> head. <laughs> like, well, he's on his game at least. Yes. Like, I mean, at, le- at least it wasn't the bouncer handing you the beer going, yeah. I'm sorry, mate. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about the trouble earlier. You were very funny. Yeah, have a beer on me. Uh, okay, so you go and do these, like, competitions. Do you remember what you were talking about when you first – like, what were your first jokes about, do you know? Uh, I had – I do. Mm. Uh, burned into my head. Uh, like, the, the first one was uh, – um, Oh, God, I hate going back on these because they're not good. No, of course they're not good. None of our first jokes were good. (laughs) This is why this is a fun thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, So the first was something along the lines of, like, it's my first time doing this, so 
let's hope it's not too painful and my dad doesn't walk in or something like uh-huh. that. Yeah, nice. Easy yep. gear. Hadn't had sex yet, uh-huh. so no, I was so working normally, on spec. The, the, the cliche, <laughs> the comedy hack in this situation is doing your first gig is a lot like the first time I had sex, you know, and then you extrapolate whatever your comedy line is. Yeah. But you haven't had sex, no, so, so you've taken to it to a masturbation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, and then um, I, I can't remember. It was a lot of like, um, and this is like the Gervais school of comedy mm-hmm. at the time. I, it was a lot of uh, trying to find an idiom. I remember looking up lists of idioms yeah. or like things like that or nursery rhymes. And being like, okay, let's interrogate this. It was yeah. hard hitting stuff. So no, like, no, but like taking something that everybody, it's commonplace yeah. that we all accept it. But that's why those things are so delightful when they're done well. Yeah. Is when you, the first time somebody makes, a joke about like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall and them calling all the kings horses. Yeah. You're like, you're right. Yeah. That's that is ridiculous. Thing. Why yeah. are the horses involved in this? Like, you know, it's a funny, like it is. The reason that those things work is that like comedy, a lot of the time is about that idea of going, what is this thing that is hiding in plain sight? Yeah. What is this thing that we all say all the time or we all do all the time? Mm-hmm. But if we interrogate it, I mean, it's something we do on Gruen quite a lot, which is just take something, take an ad and assume that everything in the ad is on purpose yeah. and interrogate it on a level that even the people who made the ads did not intend that ad yes, to be exactly. interrogated. Yeah. And so this was, for me, it was uh, the grand old Duke of York. Oh, yeah. Uh, had 10,000 men. Had 10,000 men. Marched them up to the top of the hill and then, and he, then he marched them back down. down again. But here's the, mm-hmm. here's the push. When they were up, they were up. Yeah. When they were down, down they were down. down. When they were only halfway, halfway up, up, they were neither, neither up, nor, up nor down. And here's where I came uh-huh. in because they're still up. Yeah, it's true. They're halfway Absolutely. up by definition. Halfway up. And at this point, yeah. the crowd's screaming. They're saying, of course. More, more. <laughs> <laughs> Take, at last, someone has taken down this grand old Duke of York. Well, only been, took him halfway down. Yeah. <laughs> when he was down, he was down. He was like, because you're right. Like, He's never been down. Yeah. I don't think he's actually ever technically been down in the entire thing, right? No. Only in relation to the up that he'd already gone. <laughs> but he started at the bottom, like much like it's Drake. Rich, mate. <laughs> he started at the bottom. Now he's here. Here being either halfway up or fully up the hill. So, but then, because, so uh-huh. this is how I'm putting together this act in my head. So there's. This is fun. There's this that is a fun bit. Start. I like this Grand yeah. Old Duke of York bit. Bring it, bring it back. <laughs> there's the Grand Old Duke of York bit. Yeah. And then I had. Um, a bit that was, oh, my God, I had forgotten I had this bit. This was my bit at the time. This uh-huh. is someone brought this up to me a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that apparently it had stuck in their mind. But it was about um, the, the bird, the kestrel. So, again, big targets, but the bird, the kestrel, which is another real Ricky Gervais thing because his show is about animal facts. And I was like, well, comedians have animal facts, so I'll mm. find an animal fact. <laughs> that's that's the cliche. Comedy's about animal facts. I mean, but this is... Like, in a way, yeah. really good. Like, because, I mean, I was, you know, I'm being a bit mean-spirited to Ricky because I think he's a terrible comedian. But, like, <laughs> but he's written some of the most iconic TV shows of yeah. all time that I love. Like, mm. I love The Office, loved Extras. Like, you know, there's a lot of what he's done that I have really enjoyed. Yes. I have. I saw him do Animals Live. Wow. Yeah, in England. So I was in England. I was such a huge fan of his. I actually went to it. Couldn't believe that he was like, had a lecture, lectern and was reading stuff. I was like, what is this? Yeah. But it was like someone who was doing stand up for the first time. Like people have a go at like Nanette and they go, it's like a TED talk. Weirdly enough, 
Ricky's stuff was much more like a TED talk yes. in that he would literally stand at a lectern and do a bit of a comedy lecture. Yeah. What a great way to learn how to do comedy because you were basically seeing him learn how to become a stand-up. So many of the things you're talking about, those basic building blocks of going, let's find a nursery rhyme that doesn't make sense. Let's find a little quirky fact about an animal and then extrapolate it out to essentially put this quirky animal fact on and then give it a human perspective on top of it and the comedy will come from the incongruity between the two of those things. It was pretty basic comedy. So in a way, as a way of teaching people how comedy is done, yeah. it's almost like a perfect thing because it does give you good examples of what you could do yourself. And it, it does feel doable, whereas like Billy Connolly feel like yeah, you're he like, seems he's to... He's a magician. Yeah, he's he weaving all these stories together. Yeah. And he's also, his stories are life experience. Yeah. And something I was very aware of mm. is I have less life experience than everyone in my audience. So I like, if I try and say like, you know, like what it's like to do homework or stuff like that, you're immediately showing your ass. Whereas I had to pretend like I'm on your intellectual level. <laughs> so to do that, I want to talk to something universal. I can't pull up stories from my own life because I haven't done anything yet. You know, the worst thing about that is though, that I absolutely think that's untrue. Like when I see a young comedian mm. and it's almost always the case when there's a young comedian, they're talk, trying to talk about things that are slightly older than what they house yeah. because they want to fit in with the people who are around them. Makes sense. I totally get that, right? Mm. But actually, we've all been 15. Yeah, yeah, you know, true. It's so relatable. <laughs> like if you like go, you know what it's like when you're doing your homework? Everyone in that room is like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we all had to do homework. We all remember this. We've all been 15. And it's so – like I always get – when you see someone young doing it, why they don't want to talk about being young. Mm. But I always want to come to them and just say, this is this is the great opportunity. Yeah, this is good Like stuff. everything that you're – if you talk about your life, it is relatable to everyone in this room because we've all been there already. Mm. And then so I like – and so I would be doing this and there was that and there was like – so the it was animal fact. The animal fact was that um, the – The um, kestrel. The kestrel mm. uh, used to be known uh, – in like in middle English used to be known as windfucker. Oh, like, that's a fantastic name for a bird. And then I'll go through like that, how great it would be to be named windfucker. I believe the punchline <laughs> of the line were, of the piece was I sodomize the air you breathe. I believe that was where that bit ended. And like, I like that. Like that's I, good. I, I that's could, good language. That's a good that line. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but then because, this is nothing like learning bit by bit from Gervais. Mm. It's also like the way you get a reaction out of your audience is you have to be offensive. Yes. And so I would try, and I tried for years mm. to be a kind of shock comic. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't really have it in me. No. So I could never, like I would do it. I could like, I could craft the joke. I could do it. I couldn't feel good about it, but I thought that's what it was. And so I, I went quite far doing an act that I hated. Yeah. And um, I had like, uh, I remember having someone, like when I had gotten much older, a comic asked me if they could buy one of my old bits, which was in this area. And I remember needing the money, but also being like, I don't want this said. I don't care. But, like, <laughs> it's just yuck to be out in the world. So I had to decline the basis of like, I don't want, I want you to feel like you can't morally say this. So I'm not. <laughs> I think that so that's the flip side right that's the dangerous thing about yeah. like you know a, a Ricky Gervais or whatever who's using shock and look 
again, this is not a judgment call on people who want to use that. Yeah. But it can give that example to people that that is what comedy is. Yes. That's just a version of what comedy is. And it's is. just not my version yeah. of it. Like, And there are people who do it very well and very carefully, but like... Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, and you need to be surgical about it. Yeah, exactly. And it needs to be your passion. Yeah, and I like didn't for, have that for control. a Jimmy Carr or a, um, you know, I mean, even Daniel Sloss to a certain extent. Mm. Like, you're people who are using shock or provocation to make a bigger point, or yeah. because it's what they do. Like Jezelnik, or, or like yeah. Jezelnik's a really good example, right? Mm. Like a super smart guy with a big heart who clearly crafts edgy jokes for the purpose of them being edgy, provocative jokes, but yeah. they're clearly well-crafted and that's who he is and what his persona yeah. so is. So it's like the the jokes are dark, but the show and person isn't hate-filled, yeah. which is a, an interesting area to go. But to get there, you need a lot of ability and control. And it feels like where a lot of people go wrong is, and where I was going wrong, was believing it, you just say the worst things you can mm. imagine and that's good. Well, it does get a reaction. Yeah. So this is like when you're young, like it's very hard to distinguish reactions. Yeah. Like, you know, particularly when you're new. And I look, I'm absolutely the same, by the way. Like, I mm. mean, there was plenty. And like, I mean, I learned, like my first joke was literally like a, a ripoff of like a Tony Martin style. of Like he had this joke about um, lifestyle condoms. Mm. And he was like, you know, it was about the wording of them being called lifestyle condoms and the slogan was designed to cover your entire lifestyle, which meant he was like, does that mean that lifestyle is another word for penis? And like dot, 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 you know, right. here come the jokes, you know, based on substituting those two words. Mm. And my thing like literally was like in retrospect so much just the same joke. I thought it was a completely different joke. You know, yeah. it was about Greek yogurt and Greek being a different word for anal sex and like blah, blah. Like, you know, it felt like a complete, this is like, his is about lifestyle condoms and mine's about Greek yogurt. Yeah. Like they're different jokes. They're not. It was the same joke with like different characters. Mm. But so you learn from the structure of people that you're watching. So that makes a lot of sense. But also the, the way for me that bit, it would work every time, A, because I'd taken someone else's good joke structure and like was basically just using it. But secondly, anal sex, Greek, like there was always a reaction. Yeah. People would like, you know – and when you're young, young or new or emerging, like you just need it. Like the thing that you're most scared of is complete and utter indifference. Exactly. And it's electric. And yeah. the ooh yeah. feels as good as a laugh <laughs> yeah. at first. At first, and yeah. And I would say like it's learning that that is not the case. And like and even having things of um, people who at the time I would like back against Woolworth, but like would come up to me afterwards and you know, be like, I didn't really like this. And I'd be like, have a real young comic attitude to it. Like, well, mm. it's comedy, so it doesn't matter. And then you're like, it, it took a little bit, like it took years really to get to the point of, I would like my audience to enjoy my show though. Right. That would be nice if they had a good time when they came out. I remember seeing Daniel Tosh um, at the height of Tosh.0. And Daniel Tosh, I used to gig with, um, so there's this comedy room uh, in Hermosa Beach in LA called the Comedy and Magic Club. It's like, this like it's been running for fifty years. The guy who runs it is like what like just knows comedy back to front. It's How pretty, is he on magic? Uh, well, they always have one magician on every like show. Do they reveal beforehand which act is the magician? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be great <laughs> if they did it, and at the end you had to guess. Like, yeah, we always have one magician. They're not doing magic. We need you to point that out. They are, like, no, I mean, so it like literally the and good magicians, you know, proper. Yeah comedy stage performance, you know, magicians. 
But this is also the club. Hermosa Beach is a bit more, um, a little slightly more conservative, rich mm-hmm. by the beach. You know, you, they kind of like you to work clean or cleanish at the club. Um, they, uh, it was where Jay Leno would go every Sunday night and run his hour. Like, so it okay, was kind yep. of that. But it also would mean that you would be on lineups there with some of the biggest comedic names going around because if they wanted to go and try something, they mm-hmm. would they would go there. And uh, Tosh must have lived nearby there. So he would always go there and try new material. And because it was a bit of a cleaner club, like it was amazing to watch him work because he would still do kind of, you know, that Jezonex style edgy Tosh stuff, but just managed to kind of keep it in that, you know, clean world where it was provoking the audience but not, like it like was really respectably. Mu- it was great. Crude, like yeah. it was just really like amazing to watch. And I watched it a lot because they would do these lineup shows and Tosh would just kind of drop in generally and no one would want to go after him because he'd drop in. He was a big star at the time. He would absolutely murder. And mm-hmm. then everybody else would like, I don't want to follow that. And I would always be like, I absolutely want to follow that because I knew a, there's so much goodwill in the room. So yep. as long as you can keep it. Yeah, like, everyone's having a good time. Everyone's having a good time. You just continue the good time. Secondly, I'm not like him. You know, different voice, different energy, those sort of things. So it's not like you're comparing. And the other thing is he was mostly trying new material, whereas mm. I was mostly doing stuff that was like, you know, pretty polished. So it was actually like I, I always loved when he would come down and I would do gigs after him. And I really admired the work he was doing. So I decided I'd go and see him do – He's big, like he was doing like a 3,000 seat, you know, up at Universal Studios or something like that sort of show. And it was amazing in that I've never seen someone hate his audience as much as he did because in that context, it was early 20s frat boys who watched Tosh.0 just hooting and hollering and him telling a lot of the same sort of jokes, but really getting that woo, woo, woo at the end rather than, you know, like him pushing this crowd at Hermosa Beach where he had to actually like use his comedic skills. Yeah. And I often think that about those comedians, whereas like, I mean, super successful. He's playing, you know, this 3,000 seat stadium, but he would not have wanted to be caught in a conversation with anyone who was in his audience. And yep. I always think that's almost a curse. Yeah, there's a bit of, um, I remember there was an old uh, Stuart Lee line about a, a performer who is not bothered by the duality of meaning. <laughs> right. And there's like a real, like a lot of the audience, like I remember being in um, in shows like that where, uh, like in the crowd for shows where the comedian is doing something different to what the audience is hearing. Mm. But let's get all death of the author about this. What they're hearing is what matters now. Yeah. Like the, the, there's this element of like, you might be doing an ironic performance, but if they're taking it on face value, that's your performance. Right. Like, if yeah, if you're not communicating that or yeah. if they're getting a completely different thing out of it. So you're like trying to be edgy, which is, makes sense, particularly because you're young as mm. well. And like you're going through that period of life where you're trying to establish who you are yeah. Who do you think you are at that time? Like what if you if we went back and had a look at that person, who does that person think they are? I don't care for him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, like 
aggressive atheist, I would say, uh-huh. like like in a... I mean, that's pretty good to be that early, to be that aggressively atheist. <laughs> Normally, it's like early 20s, mid-20s that you really stumble on that. It's really good. Like, I, I would get it out of my system <laughs> in, like, in a otherwise fairly comfortable existence. I get mm. out of my system in the strangest ways, like... I remember my mum had a like a stone with a little carving on it because they my family's like I would say spiritual like uh-huh. brought up my religion not a go to church all the time so it wasn't like it was even something thrust upon me no. it wasn't like I was kicking against that but um, you weren't at a religious school or anything no, no. nothing of the sort and um it was uh she had a stone that was like a garden like decoration and it had card carved in it. Everything happens for a reason. Oh, yeah. Very lovely. Mm. Until I came along with a post-it note <laughs> oh, no. and changed it to everything happens for a treason. Not, <laughs> not, not sure what that means. <laughs> really, you know, it was the Iraq I mean, War it's time. Actually, it was, uh, i got to be honest with you. It's actually a pretty good, uh, I mean, if you know the story of Jesus Christ and the Last <laughs> Supper, I mean, he was betrayed by Judas. I mean, that's very, that's actually... Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. You've really understood the messaging here. It was treason. You're right. And then I was also like on, always on this, um, there, there was this like push and pull thing of wanting to be uh, like one of the cool intellectual city people mm-hmm. who could do comedy, but also not wanting to betray the Penrithness yeah. about that. So like, I remember, I think I, I started this a bit earlier, but like going on stage in a Panthers jacket and doing my usual act. And it was the warmest jacket I owned. I'm a very big Panthers fan. That's why I was wearing it. But then um, someone coming up to me after the show, like one of the audience members and say like, I really like the character you're playing where you're dressed like this, but you say a bunch of smart shit. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that really getting under my skin. (laughs) But it is, I mean, in a way, funnily enough, it's part of your great appeal. Yeah. Is that you do in a sense, like, you know, from me always knowing you, not only proudly where your Penrith Panthers love, but mm. you are proudly who you are, where you're from. Yes. And I think that part of, I mean, it's, it's it makes me laugh, you know, when, you know, like, because uh, obviously, you know, having worked at the public broadcaster for a lot of years, often people who accuse you of, you know, like, you know, those cliches of the latte sipping in a city, you know, blah, 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 blah. And mm. I'm like, from a dairy farm, <laughs> yeah. like, where there's 200 people. <laughs> You know, like, and the idea that you can't let a country kid or a Penrith kid or whatever have access to education or ideas Mm. or that those things should be mutually exclusive is always one of the most offensive ideas to me. Or the idea that if you need, if you're, you're off to Sydney University to study, then you must leave all so you must burn that Penrith jacket Absolutely. and become a completely new person. And there was a bit of like, because that has always annoyed me that it's easier to, you know, be a rich kid and wear a flannel and you're more authentically mm. working class than being someone who grew up in the working class right. and is just now moving into the city or whatever it may be. But I do remember like having such a like aggressive defense of this, particularly at Sydney Uni, when I first realized like, you know, we're from a different background, we're not wealthy like these people. And I remember there being what is now a good friend of mine, lovely young man, but um, he, like I was wearing a Panthers jersey at, um, there's a real through line to my wardrobe, but I was wearing <laughs> a Panthers jersey when I was at, um, uh, like walking through like Manning Bar. And he was like, hey, Penrith. And her, like, oh, he's like, like uh, oh, Panthers, love the Panthers. And I remember thinking, like, this was just 
I remember saying, shut up, a rich boy. <laughs> like, I thought, I really thought it was some rich kid just trying to like sidle up uh, to me. And, like I had, I mean, he was just being, he's actually a diehard fan. I now know right. him quite well. Okay. <laughs> Lovely bit. But I had a real like chip on my shoulder of like, not only are you not from where from, you don't care about, like you hate us. And Do which, you feel like that was based on truth or was it based, like, I mean, I'll take what's, what's the truth. reality yes. of the situation? Like, were you being overly paranoid about that or was that literally the attitude that you felt from people in that situation? I think both, mm. but what you'll feel, like there's less, um, like it's the real they don't think about you element, but I think that what you're pushing against is the first realisation of like systemic disadvantage. Like that, um, there are things that like that you are behind because people have it much better than you. And particularly like, um, so the way I start out in, um, university is, uh, so what are you studying at university? I am studying physics and Australian literature mm -hmm. and I'm doing that for one Natural reason. Partners. Mm -hmm. Hamish and Andy back together. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, I had, uh, so, uh, I had gone to the mm -hmm. end of high school um, I thought I want to be a comedian. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. I've been doing it for a few years now. I want to write the dish part too. And yes. I believe that physics and Australian literature are what I need no to get there. no idea how close you are to that. <laughs> yes, I did go out with my parents to the Parks Elvis Festival <laughs> so I could get a look at the dish while they were doing all the Elvis shit that was happening. <laughs> and then... Um, I get, and I get to to uni there, and the reason I'm like studying these things is I was like, I want to. You can't study comedy, and I wanted a like time to kill, basically. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the, I want to go study something, and um, uh, I remember typing journalism into the like database they have of mm -hmm. courses. Now it's called media and communications, but no one communicated that to me. So I typed in journalism. It got no answer. So like, mm -hmm. all right, I guess you can't study that either. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I'll just do physics. Mm -hmm. And, but I like language. So I'll do literature as well. And I like did a double degree of those. Um, and then that transformed into Australian literature and things of the sort, but to do this. So I'm living in the blue mountains at the time. And so when I'm doing, now, I'm now like gigging regularly, but to gig regularly, I am like after the first like four or five gigs, you've really used up your, hey, friend who has their P plates, can you drive me into the city on a random Wednesday night? So I'm now on the train in. And so it is a two hour train in. And then I go from like central to Glebe or whatever, perform for five minutes, take a two hour train back. Yeah. And if it goes bad, there's one thing on your mind for those whole two hours. And yeah. like, I'd be rewriting a set or writing as I, you know, always working on this on the way in and out. Oh, I love this. You're like a little M&M yeah, exactly. on the train, yeah. on the way to your gig, <laughs> mum's spaghetti all over your T-shirt, <laughs> over your, your Penrith Panthers yeah, exactly. jacket. <laughs> and then um, I would uh, like do these gigs. Because at the time there was yeah. a gig um, near uh, the right in the middle of the city called The Laugh Garage. Yep. And I had somewhat of a residency there that mm -hmm. I'd do there like three times a week I would go in and do five minutes in the show. And then eventually I did well enough that they would put me on the Saturday show. And like, so I was slowly getting a bit of like regular performing happening. Um, and I remember going to Sydney university because I knew that I knew about three comedy gigs quite near the campus. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to the O week and seen a couple of now, um, like, uh, quite successful comedians, Michael Hing and Ben Jenkins were hosting the O week. And they were very funny. And I thought, they're very funny. I'll, I'll write with those guys. That's a great idea. And so I decided to take it on about $40,000 of Hextet <laughs> to get those two things together. 
But then, um, it's not bad, really. To be honest, that's no, not, that's yeah. not bad. I mean, Sydney University has a long tradition of producing Australian comedians. Yes, like, I did not know this. Oh, okay. You didn't I know had that? No idea okay. that was the case. Interesting. Um, and I like I just picked it as. Well, it was, I was talking to a lot of my high school friends who were going for the same place. And the reason we explicitly talked about this, the reason we weren't in the university was it felt like they didn't want us. Like the, a lot of our friends went to Wollongong or University of Western Sydney, because, or which is now West Sydney University. Uh, that's a rebrand covered on Gruen, available on iView. <laughs> <laughs> Don't but, go way back to the really early episodes, though. There's some pretty dodgy jokes that don't stand up. <laughs> But then, um, yeah, so we were there and there was big sandstone stuff and it felt like, yeah, it felt like we don't belong here. So we would like to push our way into here. And, um, but then I, my dad had. It's interesting to me, by the way, because Mm. I went to Canberra University and part of the reason that I didn't go to one of the big city universities was generally just that I was afraid that I did not belong. Like I toured them all and I, you know, like I thought about it and mm. like, I mean, I, even to this day, I mean, Adam and I did our fi- f- final breakfast show at, at Manning Bar at Sydney University because Adam obviously was discovered at Sydney University, yep. spent, you know, 19 years doing a three year, four year degree <laughs> <laughs> at Sydney University. Um, and even when I walk through it today to do something, if mm. I was like doing an event at Sydney University or whatever, I still walk in there and go, feels like I don't belong here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because I feel like I've had like a real, I had a nice journey there mm. where I, I, I draked it. I started from the bottom and then went really well. Because um, so when I was starting out there, my dad had worked out that he was working in the city. Um, and so he had like a um, back problem, which meant that he had to leave the RAF and a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff there. But um, he uh, was working in the city and had worked out it was slightly cheaper to drive us both in than to get two weekly tickets. So uh, for the train. So he drove us both in each day, but it meant I was on his schedule, which is a 4am start. And then like 4am start in the Blue Mountains, drive into the city. I'm dropped off on campus at 6am. 6am. There are no classes for me until 10am. And there is no building open until 9 so there are. So what are you doing? Well, there's this like these sets of seats outside the science library, which are like hostile architecture. Uh-huh. They're like curved horribly and made so people can't lie on them. So I'm lying on those. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> like that. If it, if, we can't have these seats being comfortable. <laughs> people will get here very early in the morning and just sleep on them. Yeah. <laughs> so I was doing that, and I would um read like i do uh, my readings and stuff like that or just try and sleep and then at 8 a.m lecture halls would open for early classes and i'd go to those classes even though i didn't have them because you could sit and it was warm right. and so i would sit inside there and then and attend. what would you like go like what would those classes be do you um, remember the sort of things that you would go to that you weren't technically meant to be at so a lot of 8 a.m was like early mathematics which uh-huh. i don't like i wasn't at the level of getting but i was doing maths in my area so i was like i felt like i was studying up at least or right. doing a little bit of that area and i was mostly around like the the science or science build uh, the science or mathematics buildings there was a rare occasion when i started to know people in med that i would just interfere in a med lecture and so there's a couple of dodgy doctors out there because i've ruined their their learning but um but yeah and it was mostly like sitting through those things and then because this was um such a long journey back and forth i started to get really involved in campus life because having to catch the train back was too like both too depressing a thought because i just this was before you know, you weren't streaming anything on your phone. You were 
reading books mm-hmm. and thinking and all these horrible things. Uh, so I was, um, I didn't want to have to take the trip back because it was just too long and too daunting. And particularly if I want to do gigs, there would be a period between like three or four, your lecture ends, and then you have a gig at seven or eight. And so I just had to fill that time. And that's how I get involved in university comedy, the reviews, the societies and things like that. Um, but then also like have to then balance that of like having these, this dual life where in the city, I've got these like university friends, I'm learning all of this cool stuff. I'm getting to do comedy and what I love. And then I often have to sneak off to catch a train home and do night fill at Coles for like from, you know, uh, 10 PM till 11, or like, like eight till 1130, something like that. And then, um, you know, get up at four, get back on the, um, like back in the car and into the city. Uh, so that was the loop for a very long time because I also just physically couldn't afford to live in the city. It just wasn't a possibility. And so luckily I believe that it's, it's fine to live in Sydney now. now. (laughs) That's all sorted itself out. They fixed it. (laughs) Yeah. I think this generation will have it fine. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So you're living this life where in a way, Yes, it's it's forcing you to spend more time in lectures, to yeah. involve yourself more in university life. But as you said, you're clearly wanting to stick around to do these gigs as well. So yeah. at that point, what are you thinking these gigs are going to lead to? Are you thinking you're going to be a stand-up comedian? Like, are, are you even thinking about that or is it just about the idea that you, you like doing it and you want to keep doing it? Like, is there a... I mean, I look back when I first started Mm. and as naive as it seems, I guess there was like, there must've been part of me that genuinely was like, I want to be a stand-up comedian and this is what I'm going to do for a living. So I guess this is how I learned to be a stand-up comedian. Um, Was that what you were thinking? I think so. Yeah. Mm. You know, at the time, the um, Chaser had a chokehold on the ABC, mm-hmm. um, and there's like, uh, like there seemed to be young comedy was coming through. And by this stage, you must have an awareness of that. You know, with say the Chaser being mm-hmm. on the ABC TV, that a lot of, you know, the the members of that had come directly through Sydney University. You must have started to realise now that people you were seeing doing things were people who had been where you were. Yes. Yeah. And that was starting to come up. And we were also part of this um, comedy collective at the university that had a lot of momentum. Mm-hmm. Like it was packing out shows every week and people out When you the say door. a comedy collective, what does this mean? Uh, like just, a, a, so it was called Project 52 and uh-huh. it was like, um, a, a, like. What's that? What does that mean? What, what was that? Uh, there was going to be 52 weeks. I was uh, not around for the conception of this. Say, I was going to say, it felt like, a, like 52 immediately feels like a weeks of the year thing, but yep. I didn't know if and it was. 52 uh-huh. for the maybe 40 weeks of the year you're yeah. actually on campus, <laughs> yeah. of which not always a show on, but yeah. you know, Project 38 was the yeah. idea. But um, so this would be like a, um, a group that uh, were just the, the people who ran theatre sports mm. and they also, and they're the same people to like, like, Ben Jenkins, Michael Hing, like Steen Raskopoulos, and a bunch of people who have since gone on to make um, great comedy careers. Yep. Um, and so they would be theatre sports at the time was a real institution. Apologies to Ben Jenkins, who is the only person you've mentioned that I have not had on the podcast <laughs> so far. I love you, Ben, and I would love to have you on at some stage. Uh, 
and like he was uh, so like there would be like sketch shows and stand up and um things that they would run each week out of the bar and they'd also do theater sports and i was only on for the stand up because at the time i had the real thought of i'm a pure stand up uh-huh. i don't know how to improvise i don't know how to write a sketch mm. But I am a, I know how to do stand up comedy. You know so where a great place to learn how to do those things would be? Where? University. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's a great time for experimentation <laughs> and learning how to do things. <laughs> and that's but that's how I got and it was through that and then I started joining the reviews uh-huh. and I like learned. So are you them. writing then? So when do you start writing for, when's the first time you write for someone else? That's actually high school mm. uh, that I got out of uh so uh, I was in drama class and I was a terrible actor. And I got out of um, having to act the big end-of-year performance because I wrote a play for everyone else to perform. Oh. Um, because you you get like these uh, devised things and you have mm-hmm. certain topics you have to do. Yep. And ours were The Generation Gap Lives was our prompt. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a all-singing, all-dancing play about the 90-year-olds in a retirement village when the 60-year-olds move in. Oh, yeah. And so it was a West Side story, it's essentially, good. that is... A good that. idea. Yeah, we'll bring it back. <laughs> it's a good bit, though. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Uh, like, I've been on long drives, and mm. um, part of the long drives across the Australian coast is you see there's a lot of retirement communities. Yeah. They, they tend to be in these, like, kind of coastal towns where it's more affordable to, you know, build these retirement communities. Mm-hmm. And what I realised is that some of them start at age 50, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm 50 in January next year. Yeah. I could technically move into a retirement village like next year. That could be the next ABC. I mean, program. that could be our next one. We can bring back this thing you wrote when you were like 16, <laughs> and I can star in it as the guy who moves in at age 50 to a retirement. Like it's like basically old people's home for like four year olds or whatever it yeah. is. Except it's old people's homes for a 50 year old. <laughs> Uh, okay, so at this stage, you're writing, st- you're, you're performing stand up. Yep, I'm he- writing sketches in the yeah. science review. Okay, like, so that which is like a- so the science, like okay, you you were going to explain anyway. So I was going to ask you a no, question sorry. to explain what it seems like you were going to explain anyway. Which is so I'm familiar with law reviews, yeah, you know, drama reviews, these sort of things. I first saw uh, Charlie Pickering at, at the Monash. University Law Review. I had a friend who was doing law at Monash University and um, I was I was doing stand-up and she invited me along to see the Law Review and I saw Charlie Pickering in that. And uh, I'm familiar with the law department, drama, having reviews, but I wasn't familiar that the science so would have a review. That's uh, – they barely did really. Okay. It had only been recently revived and um, it had existed some point in the 70s and then had come back maybe three or four years before I had shown up. And it was like, even at this university, like your law review and your art review were big and beloved. The engineering review was loved, but that's because it was a drunken wild night, not mm-hmm. necessarily for the craft of the show. Sure. Um, and it, it's interesting, like that when the science... Uh, engineers across the board always partied pretty hard, didn't they? Didn't matter which university you oh, went yeah. to, the engineering department always had a reputation as partying quite well, hard. Whether you were watching their Tequila Mockingbird or <laughs> looking for all the brandy, either way. I mean, um, I, both good. Yeah, pretty good titles. Both good. I'm standing by both of those as good pun titles. Um, but then, uh, so the interesting thing about the science view when I mm. got involved with it was that it was mostly, like it was scientists who were looking to have a, like a bit of fun at the end of the year put on a show. They were doing it for um, a charity. It was a nice uh, thing. And when I came in, I was the first like, 
writer who happened to do science. So it was Because like, this is interesting. Like, I mean, this is a great interesting area because mm. like from the story you've told, I reckon there'd be a lot of people listening who said, okay, you want to go to university, you want to be a stand-up, you want to be a writer. You know, you, you end up in a philosophy degree or an arts degree or like a writing degree, but you've, you know, really like, you know, you found yourself in the science world, which yes. is particularly at the time quite an unusual space for like a creative person yes. to be. They seemed to be, there was a demarcation for a while in between those two things. Absolutely, yeah. And and strangely enough, I wanted to be in the science world because um, I loved the story of it. Like uh -huh. I was never particularly good at lab work. I was terrible. I used to put off my lab work and then have to spend about a month at the end of every year, just me and the large angry Russian man who ran the Sydney Uni Labs at the time. Yeah taking me patiently through all the experiments that I had no idea how to do. But I love the stories of like, here's how this was discovered. Here's yep. how we worked out these things. And that's why I really love that. And then um, I feel like uh, there's a thing in, I'm sure it's in AFL world, but I'm um, the basketball world, which I'm familiar with, which is when you have a like bottoming out team, they get a good draft pick mm -hmm. and it becomes the draft picks team to learn and evolve in because it's like, okay, we're going to back you. I felt like I got that kind of lovely treatment in the science review because all the people who really aspired to be creatives were in arts and in law. And this was a bunch of like a lovely group of people, very open, but I was willing to be like, I want to put this whole thing on my back and I will run it and this will be mine all over, come with me. And they were very happy to be like, well, you seem to care a lot about this. Yes, let's do that. It's amazing how often that will happen. I mean, I remember in year 10 at school when I, wrote like our house play, mm -hmm. you know, which is ridiculous that I just like went up and like the, I just told everyone, I was like, I reckon I can just write us a play instead yeah. of everybody, like us finding us one and whatever. And I, in retrospect, cause I think, how did they let me do that? But I think it's exactly what you're talking about, which mm. was that I wanted to yeah. and they didn't really want to, but they quite liked the idea of having something. Yeah. And if I was willing to take care of it, then they were fine with that. So I can imagine this, like that they would be like, oh, this is great. This is someone who's, in our field, passionate about the ideas that we have, but also passionate creatively to do something. Yeah, and it's something that particularly as I went on in university doing these things mm -hmm. that I like, it became more and more obvious that this was where the passion was. And I wouldn't understand like, you guys are really focusing on your biomedical science degree instead of these sketches that yeah. really need more focus. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like a tutor telling me um, at one point, mm -hmm. I had done more like time on stage that week than in any of the lectures, any of the classes. And he was like, you need to ask yourself if you actually want to do this, which is very rare in university because people stop checking up on you. What that means is I'm going to fail you if mm. I don't see you more. Yeah. And I had a, like, there was a very, there was a teetering point there where I almost did not finish. Like it became a point of pride of, I have to finish this degree if I'm starting it. Um, because that like, I can't come out like I can't come out of this with nothing, but also it was very important to my parents, to myself. Like I was a real first member of the family to go to university for in, to my knowledge, first member of the family to go to university. And, um, so it was important to come out of that with something. I was yeah, also, to do it. Yeah. To, like, I, I, so I absolutely understand this because I was again, same first kid in my family to go, like first kid in my family to like, you know, finish high school in my family, but you know, my direct family, but, um, you know, to go to university, there was that real thing of going, you know, like people have sacrificed to get yeah. me here. 
and I'm not going to piss this away, but I remember having a very similar moment to what you've just said because I think that that teacher in a way was actually teaching you a very important lesson, like one that you had to cover off in a different way. I understand that and I understand because I remember having – and I remember this meeting distinctly. I remember this moment very distinctly. And I was, I'd been invited by this, uh, one of my lecturers at university and they wanted me to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. Should they were, I think the way that the Rhodes Scholarship works is they nominate you for it or something. Anyway, mm-hmm. they wanted to nominate me for the Rhodes Scholarship, which for, I, I, even I don't really know what that means. I know what it means you go overseas, you study yeah. overseas. This it's is about very, my knowledge of yeah, it. It's a yeah. very prestigious like scholarship where it allows yeah. you to go to one of the they big... They make a colossus of you, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like she was explaining, she said, look, you know, we're willing to, we think you know, you'd be great at this, but you've got to, like, if, if we're going to, you know, put this faith in you, you've got to make this your absolute priority. Mm. And so you've just got to decide whether you're, you know, serious about this or not. And, like, the whole point of that was meant to be, hey, dedicate everything to this. This is a really great opportunity. Yeah. But I remember just sitting there going, oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I am. Yeah. Like, you know, and that was actually quite good. It was a good way to put it because even though that wasn't, really, I guess, the proposal that they were saying to you in that moment, which is, yeah, hey, you know, you, you know, you're spending more time on stage than you're spending here in classes. What's important to you? Well, you clearly made the choice of what yeah. was important to you. And that, it's strange to think now with, um, like, I am very prideful of where I'm from. I like talking about it. I like also, I like being a writer from Western Sydney because I remember how rarely I got to see that on credits and things and it always meant a lot to me. Um, but I also remember, particularly at that time of first coming into the city, first moving in, for me and for my friends, the entire motivation all the time was escape. Like it feels like yeah. fondness has come in retrospect uh-huh. and fondness has come like when you've stepped away and be like, actually, I this is my home. It feels like my home to me. But so much of the drive was to get out of here and oh, to make course. a name for myself. You know? Yeah, no, no, no. That, I mean, that makes complete sense. So you finish your degree? Yes. You write this now. Do you write an entire science review first? Uh, two. <coughs> okay. <laughs> names? What were Three. they called? Uh, I only got to pick one of their names. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guess which one. Okay. Jurassic Quark. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in the charge of the Light Brigade. Oh. NASA Blanca. Oh. Okay. Actually, you know what? I'm not I'm not entirely sure yeah. about this. Um what was the first one again? Jurassic Quark. Mm. Mm. Oh. Oh. No uh, home runs, hey? No. Uh, um, Indiana Jones and the Radius of the Lost Ark had already been taken. Okay, yeah. Or, or the Radius of the Lost Quark. We could have done Quark <laughs> again there. Okay, assuming Quark is a term we're allowed quark to use in this. Uh, I'm going to say NASA Blanco was. You are correct. Yeah, was your <laughs> Okay, good. Um, and you won't believe this. It was a kind of a West Side Story kind of plot. Had <laughs> <laughs> you only seen one? <laughs> I've never seen West Side Story. <laughs> I know there's clicking and they walk towards each other. Each time you would say, it's a real take on West Side Story. And people are like, I don't reckon this guy has seen West Side no, Story. I'm he from the West Side and it's a West story. story. For everything I write Does is a West Side it's Story. About- <laughs> The western suburbs of Sydney? Yeah, it's the Cronulla Sharks versus yeah. the Newtown Jets. Jets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, okay. So, 
you're performing, you finish university, like, you know, because we're on limited time and I want to get to some other stuff. Yeah. Let's, uh, let me ask you this. The, the vague premise of this podcast, as you know, is I ask people whether they have a life philosophy of any kind. So mm-hmm. um, let's just have a cutoff, like, up to university. Yeah. If, if, can you remember, if we went back to young Jimmy, Jimmy C back uh, in the university days. <laughs> yeah, I know, me too, but <laughs> kind of fun too. Um, what do you think, he, if I asked him at that age, what yep. do you think his philosophy to life would have been? Uh, I, I think it was very much work hard. Mm-hmm. Like that whatever you care about, work very, very, very hard at that thing. And I, I remember even the first days I got, jobs on shows or uh, not even jobs, like, like positioned on like a, a review or anything like that. I would think that I might not be the funniest person in the room or I might not be the best at this, but I bet I can work harder than anyone else. And I could back myself for that. So there was a lot of like drive and work ethic was always the thing that you can control and you can offer offer is work harder and be more committed than anyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. And do you still feel like that is part of your f- philosophy? I f- I feel like there's been this interesting transition in the last couple of years mm. because I now have a daughter. And so I still want to be that, but I cannot. No. And so a lot of the growth has been hoping that the work you have done and the uh, like skills you've picked up have made you more efficient. So you don't necessarily have to be on the track as long if you can complete the task faster and better. Would you say work smarter, not harder, James? No, I don't. I no. don't think I <laughs> <laughs> what I would like to do is work harder at that phrase to get there in a more circuitous way. <laughs> do you have a life philosophy now? Like is there, I mean, like, you know, you mentioned obviously, you know, and I've been very lucky to watch, you know, you know, to see this part of your life where, you know, where you found, you know, someone you want to share your life with the fact that you, you know, you, you have both now, you know, have a child together and like, you know, to see you become a father to like, you know, obviously it does change your life and it yeah. should change your life. And for people who it doesn't change their life, they're the ones I actually worry about, yeah, that's you know? Right. Um, I remember when Diony, my manager first got pregnant, I remember joking to somebody about, I was like, you know, like I was joking to them. I said, oh, oh, great. I am no longer the number one priority anymore, right? But at the same time, I was like, but of course. Yeah. Like I was I was joking, but it was, I was also like, but yes, that's right. Mm. Like, of course that should be the case. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it's wrong if it is the other way. So, yeah, what, what do you think? Do you have a life philosophy now? Is there something that, like, you know, that does sum up the way you look at the world or view the world or think about the world? I have a couple. I have, yeah. like, things that are, um, like, in general, I still have that idea of working very hard on what you're passionate mm-hmm. about. But Good w- thing to say, by the way, to me. Yeah, that's true. The this person that you often work for. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it is um, <laughs> trying to keep a laser-like focus of like you do what you do and you work on what you care about. Like yeah. there was particularly when you first come up in comedy, you're so grateful to have any work mm-hmm. or any job come across. You take them all. Of like course. I will do whatever. I will. There's, you know, embarrassing things with my name on it or footage I would rather not exist or whatever. But it is all there because you take whatever you can. And I'm lucky enough to be in a position now where – 
I can learn to say no to things. Mm -hmm. And it's finding like, what do you really, what deserves your time and attention? Like the, the thing that of all places, a bit of philosophy that I love comes from DMX and it's DMX tending to orchids because DMX loved to grow orchids. Okay. And he would say that like he would tend to his orchids and he'd say like everything in life, they require time and attention and that everything you care about requires time and attention. And there is no, like neither of those things can be half done. You can't, if, if you slack off on either of them, as much as I'd like to think I'm so good at whatever I want to do, I can, you know, I can cut corners and I can, and it'll still be good enough. But if you care about it, it requires time and attention. And it's often annoying how much time and attention those uh -huh. things require. But it's you have to clear the field a bit. You can't half do six things. You have to craft one. And that's been a hard lesson to learn. It's the hardest of all lessons to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one that it's like you need to keep learning. Yes. Like because Me specifically. Is, no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, think, I think when you say that, I, like, I, I relate to it entirely because – the worst times are the times where I feel like, you know, again, I say no so many more times than I say yes, but I mm. still say yes too often. Yes. Yeah, I've still got always got one or two extra things that I really don't need mm. on my plate. By the way, I have a new podcast. It's called Two Guys, One Air, and it's about <laughs> uh, the cricket that's happening in England over the summer slash winter. But <clears throat> the idea that – so let's talk about this in the context of when you first start out. So yeah. – um, one of the things that isn't on my CV, which I uh, – like I can't even remember what this show was called, but very early in my comedy career, I hosted a Channel 9 Sunday morning technology program. Yeah, I know, right? I can't even remember what it was called. It was short-lived and it was kind of in that sort of um, beyond 2000, like here's mm. like some new gadget or some new thing, some new – and like – I just sort of green screen introductions, I think, was really how it worked. And then they go to some sort of piece. I can't even remember. Like, it's so long ago. Yeah. But it was one of those things where I was like, I'm pretty sure it was probably terrible. <laughs> like, it had a touch of, like, um, Zoot Review slash oh, yeah. advertorial. <laughs> like, I feel like in retrospect there was, you know, some sort of, you know, like – that whatever the technological equivalent of chemist warehouse was behind the <laughs> house of wellness, you know, style like thing that I was involved in. So when do you first get out of university, out of reviews, out of these sort of things, what's your first comedy job? Like what writing job? Like, um, so my first writing hmm. job, I remember getting the call for this when I had finished university, I had, um, so I'd done a lot of in-the-university jobs. I'd yeah. done the uni newspaper and the reviews and a festival and stuff like that. So I was decently experienced, but my first proper job that I was showing up to write comedy was uh, Irrational Fear, Dan Alek's show. Mm -hmm. that had gotten, had, it was early days of crowdfunding. He had crowdfunded a season of this show of uh, um, creating online sketches and, and parodies and things like this uh, that would run in partnership with The Guardian, I believe, at mm -hmm. the time. And, and now is Dan Illich any relation to Dan Illich? Yes. Yeah. He's, I know he was Illich back then. I'm just, yeah. I'm joking. Uh, I'm, I'm we love Dan. Dan. Dan, yeah. Dan is probably the most regular topic on this show. Yeah, 100%. It's somebody yeah. saying, anyway, I got my start because of Dan. Yeah. Which I would love people to say over and over again because it is true. Yeah. And not enough people tell that story. He's been incredible for opening opportunities for young performers, young writers, mm. young producers, all these sort of things. I also remember um, my like uh, first interaction with him where I was doing a gig at um, 
Weekly Books that was a um, comedy show run by Dave Bluestein and it was mm -hmm. um, a bunch of uh, performers on. And he was the only other person talking about politics. And I was interested in talking about politics at the time. And so I remember writing him an email afterwards being like, hey, I really like this stuff. Um, if you're, I had no idea how the industry worked. Like, if you're doing anything, please let me know. I'd love to be involved. And he was like, yeah, come and mm. we're having a writer's meeting for what ended up being like the second irrational fear. Come and um, sit in the room, run our coffees and stuff like that. And then I spent most of that, that meeting um, pitching jokes. And they're like, great, run the coffees. Yeah. Go get the coffees <laughs> and bring them back here and we'll drink the coffees between actually pitching jokes. And then after uh, like a couple of meetings, he was like, no, you're a comic. Come, like, you should be here to tell jokes. You're still running the coffees. And I was still running the coffees for some years, which is fine. But um, the, then when they had, this, this was originally just a show at FBI Social, which was a venue in King's Cross, um, which uh, I would like, I'd be along for. I wouldn't be part of the show. I'd only do like maybe a very rarely a guest appearance, but it was um, writing jokes for the run of the show. And then when this gig came up, he offered me two weeks work comedy writing and that was huge. I had never done anything of the sort that I was going off to work as a comedy writer. And I remember getting the call from it when I was in a Centrelink office, like doing the, when you have to apply for jobs uh, to get the doll. And I was, uh, so I was trying to apply to be, I remember I was getting rejected from um, warehouse operate, like moving uh -huh. boxes in a warehouse, which is a job. I used to do that job in Penrith. Like yeah, I you was actually had industry experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I worked at the back but door for Toys R Us. But all those jobs go to Nepo babies these yeah. days. So. And then like at the same time, I was working at the aquarium mm. and I uh, like there were a lot of times here where I had like three jobs on the trot and this was the first time when I would have one job. Yeah. And, um, and that was kind of it. Like from there... Uh, off the back of that, for no good reason, I got nominated for a Young Walkley, uh -huh. which is like uh, like the journalism award, and it was off the back of a piece about the construction of uh, the Barangaroo Casino, which I did such a good job of, they decided to never make. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, um, but off, uh, like I was uh, putting that, and it, it gave me a bit of a, a start from there. And right. Well, I mean that so. That alone, it mm. just is something. Because at this stage, you're just looking for something, right? Yes. You just need a little something that says, I've done this. And look, somebody liked something that I did. Exactly. And then um, while I was working on that show, I got a call that The Weekly was starting mm -hmm. up. And um, and I think I was interviewed by Charlie. Uh -huh. But the phone crackled right when the person interviewing me said their name. Oh. And it was great because I would have been way, way too intimidated and terrible on the phone. Oh, so you didn't know it was Charlie? No idea. So you, you in retrospect, you think it was Charlie, but yes. at the time you're just talking to this person as if they're not the host, the We're person who's about, putting together the show. What's your comedy philosophy? Yeah. What do you think about these mm. things? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, this is just, I'm just chatting with someone. That's fine. I'll yeah. happily talk about this. And then, yeah, in retrospect, yes, it was definitely him. But that got me a spot on there where I was running the Twitter feed. Mm. Twitter was very new at the time. Also in retrospect, I was really mm. bad at running the Twitter feed, mm. but I was good at well, I wasn't good at pitching jokes. I would be pitching mm. jokes. Um, a uh, comedy writer you all know, Scott Abbott, once gave me an impression of me trying to pitch a joke mm -hmm. in the first um, couple of years of this show, which was uh, the writer's room was a separate room that I was not in. I would walk into the room with a piece of paper and say, 
Uh, I've I've got an idea. Um, it's not good, and I don't like it, and I, I th- actually think it's terrible. Um, I'm going to say it, but uh, just don't don't listen. Anyway, here's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> the, gr- the best lead up you can give anything you're pitching. Yeah, totally. But then um, I remember there was in the first few weeks of that, uh, I got a read from one of my scripts, yeah. and um, this is a real at the same time get, trying to be very serious and funny so like be like the i'm smart and can do this uh-huh. so i had written a piece for this comedy show for like episode two or three that was about um acknowledgement of the armenian genocide uh-huh. stop laughing uh <laughs> it was um this bit and it was about like uh how it was about a hundred years coming up 100 year anniversary yeah. and um and how it was mostly being ignored by the media the only person talking about it at the time was Kanye Kardashian. West. Oh, because of because the Kardashians. Of the Kardashians. Yeah, yeah. And um, so and he had performed a concert there and he'd run off into the river. And it like this had gotten a couple of reads, and it was the first time everyone was like, This is great. We really want to put this on. And they were very good about championing me for it, making sure like I was in control, but they were working with me and making it something that could really go on air. And then um the day before filming. Uh, John Oliver ran a piece on last week tonight about the hundred years of the Armenian genocide and how it wasn't being acknowledged in the media, but it was really shown by Kanye West, including these clips of him run, like running into a river and during a performance. So when that happens, yeah, did, like so there's two thi- like one of two things you can take out of that, like which one is like I mean actually both can be true at the same time, but I'm, I'm interested in which of the two like yeah. was more at the time for you. There's one which would be I am devastated that this happened because I was about to get this thing on air and then John Oliver's come along. Or there would be the other thing that is I've written a thing that John Oliver thought was good enough to put on John Oliver's show. Correct. And that was – and it wasn't just – like it was – a proof of concept of me to everyone yeah. else in the team as well. Like that was it like, yes. this like, went from more than your script getting up for the actual show. 100%. The fact that John, you'd identified an idea that ended up on John Oliver was more credibility. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so at, at the very least, and they were very good about this, gave me enough room to then work on other things. And, yeah. um, uh, like ended up by the end of the season, having a piece on, um, indigenous incarceration and, um, and a couple of other, like, bits and pieces on the show and had actually written for the telly, which is like uh, unbelievable to me really. And, yeah. So um, the first thing that you wrote for the telly was at the, like, I mean, the first thing that was on the TV that you go, that that's the piece that I wrote. It was it the indigenous incarceration piece or do you remember what the actual first? I don't remember. I, I think that I can't imagine that was first. Cause that was like an eight minute long, that yeah. took months to develop. Okay. Um, so I, it was probably like a joke here or there or things yeah, like exactly. that first. Okay. Little bits of jokes added right. here and there, I suspect. Yeah. And at this stage, are you still like considering yourself to be a stand-up comedian? Yes. Yes. So this, you're stand-up, but you're working like, you know, in writing and around these things as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not like a demarcation, by the way. A lot of people in those writers' rooms are, are stand-ups as well. So I'm not implying that you have to be one or the other. No. I'm just getting a sense of where you saw yourself at the time. So I was definitely like moving more into like, I'm I'm a good writer mm. and I can, I can write well, I should be a writer. And I was enjoying writing more and more and more. And as I like stepped away from, like at the university, I'd be doing very big gigs and performing to very large crowds. And I really, really like that. And um, I'd be doing festivals and like, like doing like sellout runs, which really small rooms, mm. but really big for me at the time. 
And then um, it's really like the the demarcation switch doesn't come so much from um, like falling out of love with it, but that um, the weekly would run across festival season and I could not do both. And so I stopped putting on a show every year so I could focus on the writing side of things. And then that just kind of never stopped. Like that was going to, I took a year off and then shows were always running over that period for eight years. I mean, technically the reason the weekly is always over the festival season is that the other show that runs it, that time slot on the ABC is never in the festival yes. season because the asshole who hosts that <laughs> likes it in the festival. So technically what you've just revealed is that I am partly responsible for the death of yeah, your stand-up true. career. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So, okay. you. so you're on the weekly. You're still doing. Like, I mean, but you know, you, you're still performing. But you like you you are discovering this. Like you know, telling you what happens next after the weekly. Well, Gruen happens next. I get. I actually get. Booked. So how does that happen? I get booked for. Um, because you certainly didn't have a conversation with me. No, I wasn't on the phone, Charlie. So <laughs> it was. Um, I think uh, John Casimir was uh, had a foot in both shows and mm-hmm. um, recruited me for both at once. It was to run the Twitter feed on both. Um, and so I, uh, and that was, kind of, I've, the, I believe the steps were that um, my Irrational Fear stuff had caught the eye of Andrew Denton, who had recommended me to John Casimir. Mm-hmm. I did not know any of this backstory for years. Um, and I didn't meet Andrew until I would say last year. Um, but um yeah, there was these machinations behind the scenes, and I was brought on a great um, identifier of like talent. Absolutely, Andrew. like I mean, he, someone who was very passionate about it. Like I mean, obviously the Chaser story. Like you know, a lot of that has to do with Andrew and his support of that. If you look at um, what was the name of that uh, the show that everyone went on to be like, you know, uh, that Mark Fennell and like oh the, the Hungry Beast, Hungry Beast. Sorry, I should like it's one of those shows that. It was a flawed show and, like, it didn't actually go that well at the time, but literally every single person who was involved in it has gone on to have a great career in Australian media and make amazing things. So, again, like, Andrew's always had that real sense of going, oh, here's someone who's got something. Yeah. Like, you know, let's invest in them and see where it goes. And I was lucky enough to be dropped in environments as well that were interested in what you can do. Like, both Gruen is very good at this. I remember even when I started – our uh, head writer at the time had started on uh, the reception desk, mm-hmm. Sophie, and um, and our EP had started as a researcher, and like like there was proof of concept that you could grow into your role, like you could grow into what you want to be. I mean, that show more than anything I've ever worked on, mm. like it's a hundred percent the case. You can literally say to somebody, it, "It is a show where you can start at the bottom, yeah. and work your way." Through and out of the system. Yes, you know? absolutely. Like it is, and it and it has been proven time and time again that it and that's part of you know how the show regenerates. It's, mm. um, yeah, okay. So that's very interesting to me to see that from your perspective that you even recognised that there was a proof of concept there that you could move through the show and up through the show. Yes, and and I would say as well that um, uh, Sophie Brahms is so generous in that like particularly because I was very untried, unproven, yeah. uh, particularly in those early years. But she was eager to hand over part of the show. Yeah. Where it's- well, John did the same thing for her too. Mm. And, like, I mean, even 
So John Casimer, like, was the original writer of the show, co-creator of the show with Andrew. Mm -hmm. And, like, John, by the stage he would have been employing you, would have been in his ABC role, I yes. imagine. So he's gone from, you know, head writer, co-creator of the show to essentially running ABC Entertainment at the time. And, and you know, now he's an incredible TV creator in, in, in other, like, places. But... Um, you know, he'd done the same thing for Soph and I know that early on when Soph was like, you know, d doing her first head writing stuff, he was still unofficially, you know, running his eye over scripts and yeah. giving advice and those sort of things that it was very collaborative always. It was never one of those shows where it was like, I own this bit and I own this bit. Yeah. And, and what I've loved is I've seen that, you know, John did that to Soph and Soph did that to you. And I say, you do that to you know, young, younger writers and emerging writers who work mm. on our shows as well. And it's it's great. Like, it's one of the things I'm most proud of about the way the show works, really. It's something that I have nothing to do with other than <laughs> encouraging and observing, but I like it regardless. But then I remember um, the very first, like, the, the part where I found a mm. niche in the show, I suppose, was um, the shopping list is how we referred to it, uh -huh. which was the, um, you know, the every punchline offering up four different punchlines for that one and then handing them over at some point for you to like peruse like a shopping list yeah. and say, <laughs> mm, maybe that one. <laughs> so, well, yeah, okay. So tell me a little bit about that. Like where did you, like when did you start to realise that you were part of that, like yeah, really feel like you're part of the team? Like when did you think, I guess, that – because, you know, I've been very lucky in that, like, you have this incredible talent that, that you could be using all over the place, you know, and luckily, you know, you've been using a fair bit of it to help me do my things, which I'm very, very grateful of. But why why Gruen, like, why was that a show that you thought, you know, I'm going to pick and stick here, this is like, you know, because you were doing a whole bunch of other things and still continue mm. to do a whole bunch of other things as well. But why, why Gruen? Why was that something that you saw yourself you know, being able to, you know, grow through and add something to that show. I think it's both that um, Sophie was so generous and the whole team were of opening space that like well before I was probably ready for it, the top of the show was handed over to mm -hmm. me, more or less. Like Sophie would help me every week, but there would be a lot of what do you want to put on for the mono? Yeah, And the idea of like, so the weekly are also very uh, generous at like, helping me get things up on the screen, but you're getting a segment of the show, like a two minute bit somewhere in the show. This was the first mm. three to five minutes of every Most episode part of the show, uh, all going to be like, they're going to be on your shoulders. Mm. Go. Yeah. And, um, how that, the rest of the show goes depends yeah, exactly. entirely on those first two and a half minutes. Just always As I explain to, to the audience <laughs> every week at the show, it's like, if this goes well, the rest of the show will be good. Yeah. If this does not go well, I'll only be thinking about this for the rest of the show. <laughs> and that's, and, but it was um, both having that and uh, learning to grow in that. And then it is a really lovely environment. And this is something that people say about television and don't mean a lot. But here it is true. It is a very, very nice place to go to work. It is somewhere that it is very easy. In the same way that I still have this, like the work ethic push of I want to show that I can work harder than everyone else, that I will be pushing and pushing and making sure, like not be satisfied with things and keep working on them. Gruen is also good at saying, you need to have a life as well. We mm. will get a better yeah, product true. if you rest. Yeah, they they genuinely, I must admit, like is, it's it is a good place to work 
in the sense of you're very aware that if you were having, say, a mental health issue or whatever, that mm. there is support available for you, that the company would, you know, make sure that you were being looked after better, that they will change the hours for people to be able to work from home or not. We've had team members on projects, particularly over the last two, three years, who mm. we never were in the same room as because yes. their life circumstances meant that they just could not, you know, be in there for whatever reason it might be. So it is a very good place to work in that regard, I must say. And it is nice to work on something where we all are interested in making something good and smart, but no one in the room thinks that they're that good or smart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, and even like there's um, something I very much love about the team is that we have been doing this long enough that we're cynical to everything in advertising. We're like, yes. we hate most ads very deeply. Yeah, you're being very nice about saying most. Yes, but, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but then we also have people yeah. in the room who will say, this made me cry when yeah. I watched it. I love or, this ad. Exactly. It and, made me feel like this. And I'm like, oh God, I wish I felt anything Exactly. <laughs> and it's so helpful to have a human reaction. Yeah, totally. it's, it's, but it's also lovely to have a space where it's so easy to have cynicism win. Yeah. And it's really nice to have hope win every so often. And it feels like somewhere that hope can win every so often. Well, I think you and I are both the same in that, that you and I are naturally cynical to most of these things. Mm. But when we see, you know, George Carlin style, the grass grow through the concrete, we both look at it and go, that's better. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. We like to see it. We can't grow that grass ourselves. We we laid the concrete. Yeah. <laughs> but we like the fact that a little bit of grass poked its head through the concrete. Exactly. Um, now, uh, one of the things, I, I mean, we're running out of time, I'm sure. What time is it? Uh, 11.40. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, we're de desperately running out of time. Don't apologize. You have nothing to apologize about. There's just lots of things to talk about. I want to know what is the most interesting thing to the audience at home. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about, you know what, let's stop talking about work. We can talk about work again another time. So mm -hmm. let's talk about, well, actually, one more question about work and then we'll okay. move on. Let's talk about QA just for a second because yep. this is a, a different experience because you came into Gruen. Gruen was already a show that existed. Mm -hmm. It has evolved. It evolves under each team and yep. constantly evolves. I think that it's a very different show now to what it was when it originally, like, but the spirit of the show yep. is the same. I remember being told, just don't break it. Yeah. yeah. Improve it though. Yeah. Like we want to keep it running. We don't want to keep it the same ever. It's always about, you know, you know, my boring old mantra is that like, it's all, all I care about is just trying to make it better. Yeah. Like whether it be, Series to series, trying to make it better, or on the day when we go into the studio at 12 o'clock and we have one version of what we're going to do, hopefully by the time we start filming at 6 o'clock, we have just better. Yes. I'm not – I never have a – just it can always get better. That's all I care about. Like is just how could we do this yeah. better? But that's one thing. Then we come to this other thing, which is QA, question everything. Um, we, we don't call it, we call it QA. We're yeah. not meant to call it QA because there is also a show called QI, which can be confusing to people. <laughs> and Q&A. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I always forget about that. So, <laughs> so anyway, question everything is a show that, you know, like this is a different scenario. So yeah. this was like a, a recent creation um, created in the most horrible of all circumstances during the lockdown, during the pandemic, no audience, no, I mean, like, the, so, but anyway, let's, so what's it like trying to build a show from the start, you know, an original new show, um, then having to do it in the most horrible of all circumstances to be able to do that, then 
realising how many things after the first season are not working about what you've tried to create and the frustrations around that and then being able to like, yeah, just talk me through some of that process from your perspective because mm-hmm. I know what my perspective is and you're very aware of what my perspective <laughs> is, but I would love to hear about what what that like you know, process and journey and whatever was like from your perspective. Well, it's something that um, I've always loved and worked with Sofon back in the day a lot, um, whether it was for for Gruen or for shows in general, which is how do you fix the show? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that can change? How do you improve this show or what does it need? And that was like, it feels like when we're first building Question Everything, it was your vision and there's a lot of like, how do we pull this in the right way? How do we find its voice? Because that's something that Gruen had, like I inherited Gruen's voice. Mm-hmm. And this was, what is the voice of this show? What does it sound like? What kind of commentary does it make? I think... um Interestingly, uh, the the journey to understanding how to do that isn't from Question Everything. It's from The Weekly. And it was because I took over Head Writer of The Weekly right as the pandemic hit. And we had to redo the show because the show could no longer mm-hmm. be Charlie at a desk talking to an audience. So we had to build a new kind of show that was, um, we always say, closer to Charlie Brooker than uh, John Oliver. That like uh, footage plays, talking underneath it. What are the new tricks that you can find to build an entirely new kind of show. And it's also something I'm very proud of that like it felt like we rebuilt and we did this on Gruen as well, rebuilt shows on the fly to fit this new environment in a way that at the same time, the shows with 20 times our budget in the United States were just having someone sit at a desk and speak into the void. Like there was no effort made to fit a show to your circumstance. And I think what we were discovering was how do you build a show like that we had one vision of, which I feel like in the most recent season, we got, we got closer to, this is what our closer. vision of the show. I, I reckon like There's next season, to go, yeah. But, yeah. but we were definitely, if you watch season two, you get a sense of what season one should have looked like. Yeah. Because this was also the core, the core idea of this show is a space on the ABC for young comedians to try comedy. And what it became because of the circumstances of the lockdown was a space on the ABC for comedians to talk to an empty room. And feel very unfunny. Oh, my God. (laughs) And, like, to the point that we were redacting our own scripts like FBI documents so the research team would laugh at it. It's, like, because the only people we could have in the audience for a show where, like, I mean, particularly for these, like, new comedians. Young comics. And they were just from around Sydney because we couldn't get, and not even from all around Sydney because there were some local government areas that were locked down, including your own. I was in a criminal LGA. I needed two separate letters to get to the studio. Yeah, And uh, so for these comedians, some of them, like, I remember one guest came in one day. They had not spoken to anyone else for basically a week Mm because they live by themselves. Like, none of them are doing gigs, so none of them are... you know, like, like match fit, match fit for young people. And then we're taking them into this room where there's no one to buoy them. To, like there's no yeah. ocean for them to surf on or swim in. And and already like their first time in front of camera on TV for a lot of people, which is scary enough when it's the easiest environment on earth. And we at the same time are trying to work out how to do a TV show. Yes. So we're not even giving them any reassurance because we don't really know what we're doing either. Yeah. And uh, hence the buzzers in the first series that you may have noticed didn't reappear in the second series. <laughs> but yes, the, my favourite part of this and the thing that I will always remember forever is that we eventually got to the point where because the crew were the only people who could laugh that we just could not rehearse 
any joke. Mm. Anything that we thought was possible to get a laugh. Yeah. Like we just needed members of our own team to not have seen those jokes. Yes. So there would be these, it looked like Edward Snowden style documents that would be our script for the show <laughs> where all these jokes were. So like, even when I was telling a joke on the show, it was often the first time I'd said it out loud because I couldn't say it out loud otherwise or it oh, would spoil it. I remember, uh, as mentioned before, our lovely David Cunningham was a researcher on this show. Oh, he's a researcher on the this best. show. And he... Um, he pitched a fact to me. It's like, yeah. here's an interesting bit of misinformation mm -hmm. we can talk about. And he pitched a joke to go after it. Yeah. And then I remember sitting behind him when he mm -hmm. was in the audience and that fact got said and he went, yeah. ooh. ooh I and remember. the joke went, he went, ha, 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 ha. And I was like, that's correct. Yeah, that's good. what you should be doing. <laughs> like, get your own jokes across the line, your own <laughs> jokes and facts. I was often weirded out by the people who would not do that. that was, I was like, come on, this is your joke. But uh, then there was also yeah. that horrible, like the thing that's great about comedy is you find out in a second whether or not it's working yeah. and you do not do that when you don't have an audience. And I know up until the point, part of our disagreement philosophically on comedy is I believe that often the audience ruins jokes. Yes. <laughs> they are incorrect. I'm the comedy professional. I know when a joke is good and it is up to me to decide and yes. then you are to react how I want you to. And you are of the opinion that comedy might be for the people listening to it. Well, at, at the very least, it's a collaboration of sorts. <laughs> and maybe that is a position I've shifted on during the pandemic. <laughs> I do quite like having an audience for this stuff. Yes. I mean, the audience is, is a part of it. and But also for us, like because I think the two of us are very realistic. In fact, I think the two of us were, we were constantly being told by the ABC and other people working on the show that they were very happy with how it was going, particularly in the circumstances of what we were doing and able to achieve. And mm. yeah, I think it was you and I that were constantly going, this is nowhere near where we want it to be. Yes. Um, and like, we weren't beating ourselves up about it because we knew that a whole bunch of the reasons were beyond our control. But the hardest thing of all was working out what wasn't working mm. without being able to – like the first time we saw an audience watch our show and see what they liked and didn't like was on Gogglebox. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, They did absolutely. a segment on Gogglebox and we actually saw people like engaging with parts of the show and we're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that kind of – because we just hadn't seen that. And part of what the audience does, and this is why if you ever want to go see someone do stand-up, I always say to people, if you want to see what I thought the show was, comedy professional of 30 years, William James Anderson thought the show was, you've got to come on the first night. Because mm. after that, it's focus grouped. It's like it's a collaboration between me and the audience. I drop things, I change things, I based on audience reaction. Yeah. And we just didn't – we knew there were bits of this thing that weren't working. But with the audience there – they would accelerate that so much more quickly for us, whereas we would just have to constantly guess about what wasn't yeah. working. And it's not even like it's the closest I get to, you know, how people like, I, I'm an empath. I can feel what other people feel. But there's an element of you, when you've done stand-up for a long time, you start to read a vibe in a room in a way that mm. isn't just they find this funny or they don't. It's they're uncomfortable or they're not going along with this narrative or they're confused mm. or they're... Hell, this is something that happens a lot in these things. They're listening too hard at this section that they don't want to laugh at this joke because they'll miss the next section. So what you need to do is slow down and mark, mm -hmm. like demarcate, here's this part, here's this part. All of these little tools that we all have, but you don't know it's going out to the void. You have no idea 
how people are reacting to this at all. And so um, a lot of the show was trying to do, like you you adapt based on feedback and we didn't have feedback. Right. And so, and then you'll have to go on your own instincts, which is, I know this needs fixing. But there's also like, there's an element like uh, F1 racing has this, that you send your car out on the track. And then from that point in the first race, you can make repairs. But there's also times when you realize the whole body needs to change mm-hmm. and that can't You happen. can't do that. And you, so you can't rebuild the car mid- Exactly. Like, yeah, that's that's correct. And we knew pretty – I reckon we knew about halfway through that first series that we needed to rebuild the whole car. Yeah. But, like, you can't do that yeah, in exactly. the first series. You've just got to see if you can drive it across the line first. Exactly. It's not like, we can streamline this, we can, can put the wheels back on. <laughs> like, and then as soon as it gets back in the shop, yeah. oh, we're ripping some things yeah, apart. Totally, <laughs> the yeah. The buttons are gone. Yeah. Um, what's it like – because you know that I was, you know, like really kind of, I mean, not, not haunted is too much of a, like, and, you know, I like there was embarrassment. There was like, it was just frustration that we, like I knew, I kind of knew that if what was, you know, between you and I particularly, what was originally in my brain and your talents, I knew that we could make something that was closer to what yeah. it was that we were trying to do. And I knew that like beyond our control, all these circumstances have got in our way that made just everything so much harder to, you know, to test it. But that period of time between series one and series two, mm. like did it weigh on, cause you know, it weighed on me. Cause oh, yeah. you know, you oh, worked with absolutely. me on other things and it was all I would ever talk to you about was how we were going to fix it. But did it weigh on you in a similar way or in like, I, I'm, I'm interested to. Yes. I think every, every show weighs on me in that way. Mm. Um, to the point that like, there are times I remember during a run of the weekly where I would be working very long hours. And I remember a couple of times distinctly doing edits in my sleep, like going, going to sleep, thinking all through my dream about this script and coming out with like, oh, here's what I need to do. And it was actually quite an efficient use of time. But um, <laughs> a lot of like, um, like a lot of the rebuild of this has been like, it, it was really weighing on me, but it was also like, and like the questions of how do I solve this yeah. really, really, because I hate having a puzzle I, don't, I can't solve. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was looking like. Like, how do I build this puzzle right? But then- I don't think it luckily wasn't bad enough that it was embarrassing to me. Like it was like, like it was personally, but not in a, like other people feel this way yes. thing. Like it was. I, that's probably a really good way to put it. Mm. Like I always felt like it wasn't embarrassing to other people, but it was embarrassing to me. I, I <laughs> put it akin to like striking out in baseball uh-huh. where you're like, this sucks. Yeah. And it really, and you have to like put your head down and walk out. Yeah. And, so, and you're like, it's annoying because you know there's a home run in you. <laughs> and like that sometimes it just doesn't happen, but you know it's there. Yeah. And so that's that was the feeling of being like that. It wasn't so much like a head down depression of like how are we ever going to get through this. It was send me back in, coach. Yeah. Like like I reckon I've got it yeah, now. Give, give us me... another crack. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I like the thing that worried me the most was the idea that you wouldn't get that. Like that it would be a one and done. Well, we tried. I'm like, but we haven't yet. We haven't tried. And now I think in the last, like, even just the step, like if there was a most improved award. Yeah, totally. Like Logie for most improved, which is a really what, good Logie well, idea, actually. good for the TV industry, yeah. right? Because it would, imp- like, it would, because this is the problem with so many of these things is it often takes, like, particularly now when you're doing, like, eight episodes, ten episodes in a season, mm-hmm. that's, like, 
not enough. No. Like for things to get going. Like, I mean, we did the funny thing about the glass house is it was only on for five or six years, but we've done more episodes of the glass house than we have for Gruen in 15. Oh my God. We did 40, 40 or 42 a year, you know, when we were doing it. So there was over 200 episodes of that, you know? Mm. And, um, Anyway, I went, look, we're running desperately out of time, I assume. Can you tell me the time check one more time? Uh, 11.55. Okay, you know what? I'm going to go five minutes over, but we're going to like get this final bit of this done. We'll continue yeah. this conversation another time. But uh, uh, there are some standard questions I ask on the show, and some of them are big ideas, so we're just going to have to <laughs> build through them. What do you reckon happens when we die, James Colley? Uh, oh, not a lot. Uh, mm. I'm, uh, I'm not as aggressive atheist before, but I do think um, – Something that uh, I've always believed, and this is part of the physics background I love, is that uh, we are the manner by which the universe understands itself, the Carl Sagan understanding of that. So I think that in a macro sense, not a lot happens in the same sense that um, there used to be a, I think a Benjamin Franklin line, I want to say, but it's like, I didn't exist for thousands of years leading up to this and it never bothered me. So when I don't exist for thousands of years after this, that won't bother mm-hmm. me either. Mm-hmm. And so I have an element of that, but I also like the idea that things continue on and um, ex- particularly like like having like lost a couple of friends recently and things like that, the idea that you continue on in the people that you affect in the world does mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like I am reminded of someone or even like I, I lost one of my closest friends very young very recently and – it is a great motivator to not be cynical towards things, to be uh, of the opinion. I like this is a big thing to drop with just a couple minutes. No, left, no, like, well, it's good to have a big thing at yeah. the end. So let's drop the big thing yeah. at the end. But I was always like um, very much of the opinion just for how my health was when I was young and stuff that I would die quite young. Mm-hmm. And um, the last couple of years of losing friends and also gaining a kid mm-hmm. have put that as a different prospect now where it used to be, I need to race through and get all these things done that I'd like to get done. And I'll like burn bright, but not long. And then Mm -hmm. we're off to, I actually have this gift of being allowed to age and I've got to use that the best I can while I have it. So, I mean, of course it, again, again, these are big ideas to be like dealing with right near the end, but like love did you did you think you were going to be the sort of person who would, you know, fall in love, have a family? Was that like part of like what you thought your life was going to look like? Uh, I was certainly old romantic. Like yeah. I always wanted that, but I wasn't someone who believed that that circumstance would arise for them. And do you like remember, did your life, I mean, of course it did, you know, but in what way did your life change when you had a baby? I think there was, it's, it's, almost like a, a um, grim understanding. Like there were like, because particularly the early part, you're in survival mode mm-hmm. and you're just trying to like keep the baby alive, keep yourselves alive, make sure everything stays on track until your life can readjust around um, this new kid. But um, it, do you know what it really was? Was that I had up until that point, and this is a bit on what I was talking about before, Always had in my back pocket, like my, my, like the ace up my sleeve was always, well, if things get hard, I'll just kill myself. That's yeah. fine. That, that I still was... think that. <laughs> I const- that is like part of my constant mantra is like, well, if things get like, you know, but yeah. once you have like, you know, a kid. Yeah. Now there are knock on effects. Yeah, yeah. Really. 
really is, and yeah. it's it's very annoying. But the like, amount of times I'm like, as soon as my parents die, I can kill myself. Then. <laughs> no, they won't. And then everyone, the rest, of everyone else will get used to it. <laughs> and that's like, and honestly, like I've never. It, they don't talk about this in the great romantic novels or anything, but like. The idea that your life has worth is so frustrating because then it, you have to take care of it and there's made it requires time and attention. Like you have to go and get your skin checked and you have to drive safely and all these things that we should be doing. We need to be healthy and all this stuff. But it's the realizing like, I'm not even doing this for myself. No. <laughs> like I don't care that much, but it is important to do. And I think that's the big change of like, it isn't like, of course, like I love my daughter so much and we focus our lives around her, but the care I've had to put in myself is about that. Final questions. Uh, I'll, I'll belt through these quickly. Would you prefer to know uh, when you die or how you die? When? You have to choose one or the other. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Would it affect the way that you lived your life, do you think? Um like, you know, as in like, say, if it's five years from now versus 50 years from now, do you think that you substantially change the way that you live your life? No, I, I feel like, which I think is a nice thing. Like, it is. I, I like what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and the way my life is set up. Um, I would like to know in more of an administrative sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Need to know how much money yeah. you need saved and all exactly, those sort of things. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. I get that. Uh, best or worst piece of advice you have ever been given? Um, work hard and be the man. Jimmy Butler, the Miami Heat. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in the future or the past. Mm -hmm. uh, you can change history. You can not change history. You can go to a moment in your own life and observe it or change it. You can just go to a moment in history that has nothing to do with you. Or you can go to the future. Uh, first, so this is a question in two parts. The first part, of course, is do you go forward or backwards? That's the first thing I want to know. I'm going forward. You're going forwards. Great. Okay. Now, so this is where it gets more interesting. How far forwards are you going? Uh, hundreds to thousands of years. Ooh. I'm, I'm I mean, you're rolling the dice on that. I absolutely yeah. am. But that's like, like I look, I'm not that tied to humanity. I just need to go. I want to, like, <laughs> I want to find out what happens. I'm not that tied to humanity. That is a good attitude to have if you're going that far forward, I yeah, think. Exactly. The, like if we, if we get yeah. to the point that I'm in Star Wars, great. If we get to the point where I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's how mm. that ended. I just want to know the ending. Yeah, you get out of the time machine and there's just a giant shed full of, like, computers running AI. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, oh, well, I guess that was uh, inevitable. We had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James Colley, uh, your uh, uh, book out this year? Is it out this year? I believe it's out end of this year, start of next year, I think. Okay. Start next year. So probably too early to plug that then, isn't it? Uh, well, you've, you've got a book coming out. Yeah. That, like, look out for that. You've got other stuff, though. What should you – you can plug – I mean, obviously, Gruen and Question Everything are both available on ABC iView or you can watch them yeah. on the telly when they're on. Uh, but what other stuff would you like to I, I think the book's probably a good yeah. place to go. So okay. um, I've got a book coming out that is a novel, a romantic comedy called The Next Big Thing, which is about Australia's big things and a post-climate change town trying to erect a big thing to save their town. Uh, James Colley, thank you so much for doing this, my friend. Thank you very much.